Hello, everyone, and welcome to BizLit Today, a podcast series hosted on Law.com and sponsored by Shook, Hardy, and Bacon. I'm your host, Scott Ferguson. In this episode, Shook Employment Litigation and Policy Chair Bill Martucci discusses with his colleagues the balance of power shift between employers and employees. Now let's join Bill along with London Partner Solicitor Allison Newstead and Associate Eva Lise St. Clair as they converse on the evolving workplace and how companies should prepare. Welcome to our colleagues and friends throughout the world. We're so thankful you're with us in connection with our discussion of the new global workplace. Many, many changes have come about in recent years. And with me today to discuss these changes are two wonderful colleagues. My name is Bill Martucci, and I'm fortunate to serve as the chair of Shook, Hardy & Bacon's Employment Litigation and Policy Practice, which really spans the globe. I'm also fortunate to teach at Georgetown in connection with multinational business practices and a host of policy considerations. But the excitement today as we all delve into the new global workplace, these transformational changes we've seen in recent years. Two colleagues, my fellow partner and solicitor, Allison Newstead in our London office. Allison is remarkably gifted in the global health and safety space providing guidance for multinational clients. She has developed such a focus in this area. Her base in the UK and her work with multinational clients has provided her with many opportunities at the global level to understand these changes in a way that brings a practicality and insight She's concerned about issues as they impact health and safety in the workplace, stress-related issues, the well-being of individuals. And in the European theater, as so much has developed, she's been a leader there and in the UK and throughout the world. With us also is our wonderful colleague, Evelise St. Clair. She practices as part of our global employment practice. She defends companies in North America and throughout the world in connection with business contracts, trade secrets, and employment-related issues. Ivelisse has many gifts, and she's been kind to embrace the new global workplace with us as we seek to be ever more responsive to our multinational client base. In terms of addressing policies and practices, that would give rise to ever more robust workplaces that support individuals, that support well-being. Ivelisse and Allison have been involved in a number of cultural assessments, well-being assessments for multinational companies, have advised those companies strategically on how best to address these transformational changes that are impacting us throughout the globe. And so now we say, hello, Allison and Ivelisse. Would you each say hello to us? Hi, Bill. And nice to be here. Yes, Thank same you, here. Thank you, Bill. Thanks, Ivelisse. 
Allison, let's begin with you. We've made much of you and your global insights, your base in London, the UK and European perspective and beyond. How would you characterize what are these seemingly transformational changes as they impact the new global workplace? Yeah, thanks, Bill. I, I think there really has been um, a noticeable shift post-pandemic in the, the balance of power between um, employer and employee. And um, the nature of the relationship really has evolved. Um, in the in the US and the UK in particular, we've seen employees exerting pressure on their employers to create a workplace that really is um, good for them and works better for them. And, and the it's very much um, being driven by the employee. The employee has been holding the reins um, um, in the workplace. And I think that's been most marked um, in relation to flexible working. The, the pandemic um, was a catalyst for change in this power dynamic between employer and employee. And I think where we were previously, um, for example, where we saw that an employee who wanted to work from home, they really needed to justify why they should be allowed to work from home. It wasn't the norm, it was something unusual. Um, and the position really changed to now, we've, we've seen employers having to justify why em employees shouldn't have flexibility. Why can't they work remotely? Can they? Why can't they do their job just sufficiently from somewhere else? So we've really seen that change in the, the, you know, the balance of power between employer and employee and the relationship change over time. Um, and from our work in Europe, we, we know that other jurisdictions in mainland Europe um, have also seen a shift in the in the power dynamic, but not so much perhaps as we've seen in the UK and the US, because those jurisdictions have traditionally been weighed very heavily in favour of the employee. But um, their traditional workplace model has changed as well. It's evolving. It continues to evolve just as it does in the UK and the US. And I think what we need to put our minds to and what we have been doing and we're going to continue to have to do is to think about ways how we work with our employees, how we manage employees, how we put together our policies and our procedures to keep evolving because things are going to keep changing and we have to too. So it's about being agile and dynamic and working with that and, and um, you know, responding to those changes, I think. Well, so well put, Allison. And Ivelisse, when we think about these transformational changes, this balance of interactions, if you will, newer generations as they impact the workforce, you know that Allison and I value you on so many levels, but one additional level is you're newer to the workforce. You have all the perspectives that go across the globe in so many ways. And what do you think? Is this a generational movement? Is it broader than that? Is it transformational as such? Absolutely, Bill. So obviously the relationship between employer and employees is prevalent in the workplace. And that evolution, I believe, can be seen across a variety of demographics. It can be attributed to a lot, a lot to the recent changes that employees had to undergo in post-pandemic. Your Generation X and Generation Z are used to being in a remote work and engaged. They were that they were engaged in both during and post pandemic, which for a lot of them was when they just started out in the workplace. They're used to this idea of hybrid or remote work. And that is in contrast to the generation of baby boomers who are 
used to being in the work, working in the office and might, although they might like the idea of having to commute less, that's what they have been used to for the last number of years, having to go into the office and see these individuals. Additionally, there's also a continued push for this 40-hour, a push against this 40-hour work week, more so into the four days a week instead of five, along with the potential to reduce that overtime threshold. So um, as you see, our typical work week is 40 hours. Overtime is provided after these 40 hours. Removing that threshold to a 32 hours, allowing for flexibility for individuals to have um, to back again, as Allison was describing, to balance their work with the other obligations that they have. And this generational push, I believe, is um, coming from this Gen X and Gen Z who are prioritizing this work-life balance and wanting to ensure that they are able to have that in their workplace. Um, and that's all to say that employers are spearhead are having to spearhead this movement and have to having to deal with this change as it continues to evolve in the workplace. Ivelisse, you put it so well. The reality is to attract and retain new entrants to the workforce throughout the globe requires a new way of thinking, unquestionably so. And frankly, in a variety of places, there are laws that are really kind of stuck in a different era. So, for example, in the United States and North America, the Fair Labor Standards Act of 1938, which was passed during the administration of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, provides essentially a model for that 40-hour work week, that eight to five, nine to five kind of work week, providing for overtime in excess of 40 hours, providing for certain exemptions if one is in a given position. But the reality is, as you say it so well, there are many, many movements afoot to change what the standard work week would have meant. And frankly, even more dramatically, there are changes with respect to what is meant by the concept of work. And as we know, the introduction of AI and open AI and how artificial intelligence impacts work in the global workforce is just one of many changes that we see upcoming. So frankly, it'll be difficult for the legislatures to be effectively ahead of this curve, but certainly multinational corporations can be considering it. And with respect to policies and procedures and their way of thinking, that's certainly an area that there can be a great deal of excitement and new things afoot. Allison, what else do you see from your global perspective? Um, yes, I think, you know, necessarily um, at, at the beginning of the pandemic, we saw this marked shift to working from home and working remotely. And, and that was, you know, that was necessary. We all, we all had to we all had to do that where we could. Um, and, and work policies and practices had to be hastily drafted and or adjusted. I know we were all involved in in that, either in our own workplaces or assisting clients, you know, to put these new policies and practice in place to respond to that particular situation. And I think at that point, none of us really expected that these hastily adopted policies, which we thought would be temporary, would really be the blueprint for many businesses going forward for, for long, long term 
hybrid working um, policies and practices. So, uh, you know, I think these hastily adopted practices have now become the, the blueprint for going forward. But although the, the pandemic was that catalyst for this hybrid working re re revolution, um, I think it was always going to happen. Technology advances, and as Evelise was saying, you know, Generation Z and X, you know, really um, value their work-life balance, quite rightly so. So I think that the pandemic just accelerated what was going to happen anyway, particularly with technology, as I say. It was, it, it was inevitable and it still is inevitable that there's going to be changes to the, you know, the new global workplace. And as businesses, we need to be flexible and, and adopt to that. Well, Alison, thanks so much. And you're so insightful to link the technology to the acceleration that was caused in many ways by the necessity of addressing the pandemic and making changes and remote work becoming ever more common. At least in light of all those factors, what are some of those shifting attitudes you've observed and experienced in your work with clients in what truly is a global expansive workforce and workplace. Of course, Bill. Allison stated it wonderfully. Balance is really at the forefront of this shift in attitude in the workplace. So in this new workplace, workers are looking for jobs that have a greater degree of security. You have, on the one hand, concerns about job security and growth. On the other hand, leadership is concerned about losing this trained staff and not knowing how to properly fill those vacancies in light of the great resignation. So a company's ability to strike a balance between these two in this new workplace continues to be a challenge. Now, a shift. this shift has manifested itself in a number of ways. One I wanted to identify today was the fact that workers are holding more than one full-time position. And Allison will go a little bit further into the, econo the economy and inflation, but these Two factors, along with the increased prevalence and general acceptance of remote work arrangements, have employees seeking out multiple positions and attempting to work two jobs while collecting two salaries in the process. Now, this research into this situation is preliminary, and it ranges between employees pursuing passion projects to having another full-time job in their area of expertise. So what does that mean for employers. Employers understandably should be concerned if their employees are working more than one job. So they must decide what their policies are in regard to working with employees. And that can consist of conflicts of interest, confidentiality, ethics, remote work, and of course, the work environment. On um, the work environment piece specifically, employers would have to consider whether improving elements of the workplace like we're discussing today, an employee's opportunity to work flexibly and have some meaningful input into an employee's work and career advancement. But ultimately, the policies that are chosen by an employer should clearly be communicated to employees. And um, as some employees may have handbooks that outline these policies, whether they have contracts, either way, laying out the foundation and ensuring that this messaging is communicated to employees will ultimately help employees employers along the way. Now, 
while employees working these multiple jobs will never incorporate a large portion of the working population, it's happening on some level. And it's particularly true in the technology sector, as we were discussing earlier. Therefore, um, at least some employees are be, or employers are being harmed by this behavior. Relatably, there is an issue of this quiet promoting that is ultimately disturbing our workforce trend. And it speaks to the ability to disconnect and high turnover rates because employees are feeling they're either taken advantage of or manipulated into taking these extra responsibilities by their employers. So the multiple shifts are being attributed to essentially an employee's ability to choose how they work and wanting to pursue projects that and, and careers that would be fulfilling for themselves and employers having to manage that through their various policies and how they are investing into their workplaces at the forefront. Well, Ivelisse, you articulate those changes so well. I wonder, Allison, from your perspective in the UK and as you look at developments throughout the world, will companies return to the nine to five back in the office approach or is that a world that's truly for the most part a bygone era? Um, from what we are seeing, the hybrid model and flexible working is very much here to stay, Bill. Um, it may be that nine to five in an office five days a week suits some people, uh, but that might not suit others. And if they want to work flexibly from eight to, eight to four or at home or in, in another place where they, they want to carry out their work, I think that that's here to stay. And there was a, a recent comment I read from Raj Chowdhury. He's an economist at Harvard Business School. And he said, businesses that don't embrace flexibility will be left behind. And I think that's very true because flexibility is needed, as, as Ivelisse was saying, to, um, you know, to, to recruit top talent, to retain them, to have these benefits for both employers and employees. We need this flexibility. People need to be able to, to manage their careers and want to be able to manage their careers and their work um, in different ways. And, and um, I think businesses are are going to have to um, adapt to that and, and manage that um, in a way really that works for everyone. And I think that's 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 the difficulty. Um, in the UK, just recently in March, there was a report that said really that more than one third of workers in the UK said that they would quit if they had to return to the office full time. Now, I don't know how long that will uh, that will last, but um, I think most businesses have accepted that hybrid working is is a reality and, we, and policies and procedures um, need to be in place to, to manage that. But I don't think going forward that it's just a case of managing the flexible work policy as, as I mentioned at the beginning I think as we've all been talking um today you know the the, the sands are shifting all the time um you know things are evolving and, and even now we're seeing a shift in the power dynamic um between uh, the employer and the employee things are evolving again um and, and businesses are you know are, are trying to claw back a little bit of the work work in the office um a, 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 you know principle that we've had before but I think any attempts to to readjust the the current status really need to be managed carefully and effectively as we've been talking about and um you know importantly without putting um the business at increased risk of, of litigation which I know you're going to to talk about um a bit uh, later on Bill. Alison the point you make about the pandemic having accelerated remote work, 
really accelerated, if you will, the global workplace, the global enterprise is so striking. And we know the pandemic began in the spring of 2020. It's now several years later. There are a variety of economic challenges for a variety of countries. The G7 has met recently to discuss many of those issues, as well as geopolitical concerns. How will those economic impacts, that economic climate, impact this new global workplace? Yes, thanks, Bill. You're right. The, the, the economic climate really has changed since 2020. We are in a different, you know, a different era now. Um, you know, we're seeing we've seen inflation and war, economic downturn. And, um, you know, we've seen lots of companies who um, took on a lot of people during the pandemic announcing layoffs. So the, the power dynamic that we saw really with employees having um, more power to demand more from their employees, perhaps is swinging back a little bit towards employers now. And they, they, they in some ways are using this opportunity to overall overhaul their, their work practices. And I think fears in the workplace, which are being driven by cost of living crisis, um, mean that people who may have resisted changes in the workplace in maybe 2021 and 2022 um, might be more receptive to um, how things might be, be swinging back um, um, in 2023. Um, I think we're going to see fully remote working seems to be on the decline again. Um, people really, really had to work remotely in, in 2020, but fully remote working seems to be something that is not going to be, um, you know, so popular going forward, particularly with employers. And, and I was looking at some studies the other day and the number of jobs posted on LinkedIn showing fully remote role has shrunk uh, massively in the last 10 months um, up to March 2023. Um, it's down 30% on, on the same um, amount last year. And, and we saw recently that Meta has um, reported it's not advertising fully remote roles anymore. So I think that really ties in with this, um, you know, getting together in the office um, uh, that people want people to get together and, and interact more. And in some ways, people really, really do want to do that. Um, and that really that really ties into um, the idea of employers generally want people in the office more. We, I read another report that said, you know, 49% of leaders wanted employees to spend more time in the office. And um, I think that's that's a trend that's growing. Certainly, I've seen it very much in London. Either, even over the past week, there's been lots of um, being led by the banks of people being asked to go back in five days a week, four days a week, um, uh, three days a week. But I think three, four, five, it, it's becoming much, much more prevalent. I think we're going to see that over the next few months and years. Truly a fascinating conversation. And frankly, such an illustration of how the global workplace is changing ever dynamically so. When we return, we'll explore how we can manage those challenges and possible litigation risks as well. Shook, Hardy & Bacon is a premier trial firm serving clients in the health, science, and technology sectors. We help companies resolve claims using creative solutions to complex commercial litigation matters. Shook attorneys build on decades of experience and are positioned to provide end-to-end -end litigation support. Welcome back. I'm Bill Martucci, and with me are 
my distinguished colleagues, Allison Newstead and Yvelise St. Clair. We're discussing the global workplace and the changes that appear in many respects to be transformational. Allison, the global employer, what are some of the key considerations to manage these changes with some insightfulness and also inclusiveness of those in the workforce? Yes, thanks, Bill. So the approach is taken by businesses um, in managing the challenges they're faced with um, and posed by the new workplace are really extremely varied. Um, you know, no two businesses are the same. Um, and some industries, as we know, like retail and hospitality and the healthcare industry, don't really lend themselves easily to flexible working and some of the other changes we've seen in the workplace. But I think the key issue is that it's all about managing that relationship between employer and employee. And if it's managed properly, I think the right balance can be achieved for a business and its employees and you know, risk um, of, uh, of litigation between employer and employees can be, can be reduced. And if we look at you know, recent successes and backlashes over something like flexible work policies, we've all seen them you know, in the press and on the news that um, whether it's been a success or whether it's not been a success, the outcome has been very much rooted in um, employee engagement, I think. Um, and there are a number of key considerations. I think Ivelisse and I can will run run through a few of them. And I think they're just things to bear in mind when you're you've got your own business and what you're thinking of looking at and and managing these these changes that we're seeing. So I think the first one, from my point of view, is about consultation and changes that are made without consultation really often meet the fiercest resistance and are often um, more open to challenge. So. Consultation is a good thing and it will only not only allow your business and um, to, to obtain um, uh, information from employees and get them to highlight issues that you might not have even considered um, when you're thinking about how you're managing a workplace, but it will also help your employees to get used to the idea that the things may be changing. But, you know, your employees are great people and they can also suggest creative ways to address um, issues and, and you're going to get a nice um, touching on the point you made about diversity, uh, Bill, you know, we, if we consult across a business levels all the way across the business from everybody, all the generations, um, all the roles, we can get um, a really interesting uh, response. Um, and it, it will ultimately lead, lead to, I think, better decisions and better overall outcomes for the business um, and employees, reduce conflict and tension, build trust and lead to a better outcome, I think. Um, and to this end, I think asking the right questions in the consultation is, is key. Thinking about what do you need to get from your employees? What is, what's the ultimate aim you want to get to and how do you get to that and what questions you need to ask? Um, and also, what do you do with the results of that consultation? Thinking about that carefully and what policies you implement on the back of that is important. Um, secondly, about sharing information. It kind of ties in with a consultation, but sharing information as to why you need changes and how those changes um, to the current workplace practices may be beneficial to the business and the individuals. Um, we, we often see, I think, at the moment, um, particularly with this drive to ask people to come back into the office, that there's values of in-person collaboration and increased mentorship and all of those, which on paper sound great things, are often cited. But 
in practice, how is this going to be achieved? You know, what, what is your business going to do? Um, making those, you know, theoretical statements a reality, I think, is very important. Um, and also, acknowledgement is very important. Um, acknowledging that changing things within the workplace, perhaps, you know, changing hybrid working policies, reducing flexibility that people are used to, may have more significant impact on certain groups than others. It might be that people have caring responsibilities or specific disabilities and um, gives, giving some careful consideration how these will be addressed, giving those people a voice to um, discuss their concerns and taking those into account, I think is really important. It's all about that, as I say, managing the relationships and making sure people are heard and, and that the results of the consultation are acted on appropriately. And Alison, I'll chime in with one other point relatedly just being able to recognize that not all employees are the same. So having a one-size-fits-all policy may not be appropriate for one's business. Uh, a business may have an office-based workers who roles lend themselves to a hybrid model and those who, by the very nature of their job, cannot work from home, as you described, transportation, retail, healthcare. And there are multiple questions that arise that we should be thinking about. How do we manage expectation across these groups? Will hybrid working for one group and not the other entrench these inequalities in the workplace? What about those who may find it difficult to come into the office based on a physical or mental health issue? Is revi revision of these hybrid policies considered discriminatory? How do we mitigate the risks um, that may arise from these changes? How do we deal with pay? There was a recent study that actually highlighted a benefit of working from home for employees was helping to control the wage bill, with evidence suggesting that while workers are demanding pay rises to keep up with inflation, they are willing to trade off small amounts of pay for the benefit of working from home. But what happens when you have two individuals doing that same exact job, one in the office, one at home? How do you address that issue between the two? There was a recent attempt by a London law firm to continue to allow 100% working from home in lieu of a 20% pay cut by workers, and that was met with significant backlash and negative press coverage. So in short, it's all about harnessing the benefits of both flexibility and mitigating the challenges. Hybrid is here to stay, as we've discussed at, at length today. How a business approaches management of the new workplace will determine the ultimate level of success of flexible working. And importantly, the company's potential exposure to litigation risk. And Bill, I think you are the best to describe these associated litigation risks. Well, Ivelisse and Allison, thanks for your extraordinary insights. I'll make just a few comments about litigation risks. And then with your grace, I'll come back to each of you and just ask you a question or two, really for the extraordinary insights that Allison offered about consultation, sharing, acknowledgement. I'll ask a question in the context of policy development, cultural assessments following up to create that well-being in a workplace. And then with Ivelisse, just focused on that concept of it's not a one-size-fits-all, that there are various aspects within many multinational companies that candidly 
give rise to different policies and frankly, probably highlight the need for everyone in a given global workforce to understand the particular work setting of a given focus of job and why that may be different from another so that there's that sense of respect and inclusion in that regard. Well, we're so fortunate because really, as we come back to this in just a bit, the perspective that Allison offers from London and her European perspective and experience is exceptional. And then Ivelisse in Kansas City serving the Midwest and the West Coast. And I'm fortunate to be in Washington, D.C. because truly the litigation perspective in North America gives rise to lots of issues that uh, concern us throughout the globe. Well, here are just a couple of examples. And I have really nine areas to cover. I'll cover them very briefly, but I think you'll be struck with how universal many of these are. If we begin with conflicts of interest, this highlights a point that Ivelisse made, and that is that as we work in multiple jobs and multiple assignments, it's ever more critical that multinational companies have a very clear set of expectations with respect to what is appropriately considered a duty or a responsibility to the enterprise, and what also may be respectful of the individual's other interests, whether, as Ivelisse said, it's a passion of an interest in an area that may not be uh, another employer as such, or it may be another employer as such, or it may be work that's provided uh, on one's own. So one aspect to think of are conflicts of interest. Another that arises is just an understanding of the intersection of employment policies and procedures, business policies, we certainly start with the United Nations, the Declaration of Human Rights, some of those fundamental assumptions that we've embraced as a world. But when we think about extraterritorial application, if we think about the UK with its anti-bribery laws and how that may impact various enterprises throughout the world, more recently, if we think of New York City, the fact that there are a host of paid leave provisions certainly prohibitions against harassment and retaliation, pay transparency, New York City. I'm in Rio de Janeiro. I am in Australia. I am in Hong Kong or Tokyo. What are you speaking of? I'm in Berlin. Well, we know New York has many, many connections throughout the world. And the New York courts have shown a tendency to be ever more extraterritorial in the application of their laws, just like the UK has in some respects. And so just to be aware of those developments, be respectful of them is important. Another development is this intersection of privacy and the expansive global workplace. European laws have certainly been a leader in terms of defining privacy. California has done that ever more effectively recently. Where is this intersection of one's private interests and one's interests as part of a given company? What about payment programs and wage and hour aspects? And how expansive are those? And how can they be contrasted if one's in France, then they're assigned to New York, then they're assigned to Tokyo? How does that work just from a payment perspective? What about whistleblowing considerations and ethical compliance? Obviously, multinational companies 
have put a premium on ethical compliance to have a culture, a business perspective that encourages those to speak up. It goes to that question about sharing and voice that really Allison so well articulated. The online social media community, what does it mean to be on duty and off duty? Where do those intersect? And what are those guidelines with respect to appropriate expression of interests, what in some spaces may be called free speech, and then what's the proper respect given to other individuals and mutual regard and respect? What about emerging and potentially expansive artificial intelligence aspects? What about open AI and how do companies address that? What about unions? We see a lot of interest in unions throughout the world, certainly in North America, as we have industries consolidate as they become ever more meaningful in a given economic system, is there a, a place for voice? Is there a place for someone actually feeling like they're part of an institution or do they need another voice? Is there a new model to arise with respect to labor organizations? And those fundamental critical concerns about harassment, discrimination, retaliation, the new workplace gives rise to new discriminatory concerns. The algorithms of artificial intelligence, the concerns about microaggressions, the concerns about the digital divide. So when we think about it, where do all these leave us? Well, frankly, they leave us in a spot which means that ever more attentiveness to our global workforce to understanding the concerns of individuals, to trying as best we can to roll up those concerns into a global mutual respect, inclusive culture is really the key. And so, Allison, do you mind, as you think back about your wonderful commentary concerning consult, share, and acknowledge, I was particularly struck by your point, which I've seen you demonstrate on so many occasions with key clients, Asking the right question in the consultation is often critical to determining what might be the appropriate global workplace assessment. How do you go about that and how can companies do that more effectively so that that concept of consult, share, and acknowledge can be integrated into their operation and into their global compliance HR legal function? Yeah, thanks, Bill. Um, yes, I think with any consultation, I think you always need to start with the premise of, you know, what is the question I'm asking? What What is the issue I'm trying to get to the bottom of? And um, whether it's, you know, flexible working, as you say, or, you know, social media use, or how do we use chat GPT in the workplace? We need to think about what, what is the question we want answering? Um, and that's right, that's key. But in terms of my experience internationally, it, it makes it a little bit more complex in that we might know the question we want to ask, but we often have to be guided by the different laws and the different legal requirements in the particular jurisdictions that um, businesses are operating in, because there may be specific requirements for consultation about certain topics. 
Um, you know, we've talked about in, in previous um, sessions and discussions we've had, we've talked about the right to disconnect. And in some jurisdictions, there is a legal uh, requirement to consult about those kind of things. So I think it's not only asking the right questions, but it's knowing about the jurisdictions in which you work, um, what are the legal requirements, and the different laws that might apply um, in, in that country. There might not be, there might already be legal um, um you know, requirements that relate to minimum wages or discrimination, which might not actually apply in other countries. So it's thinking about those, thinking about the expectations, but also something that I think is often overlooked is thinking about the cultural elements of um, the questions you're asking. It's not all about uh, the law, it's about people's expectations and culturally what people expect. And that really does differ between jurisdictions. If you're in one jurisdiction, it's very usual to have a two hour lunch break or a right to disconnect or, uh, you know, there are cultural expectations. I think understanding your workforce and their cultural expectations is also really important. And um, so knowing how you coordinate that across the globe as well is is a tricky question to address. But you know, how do you make sure that we have a consistent approach when you've when you're doing the consultation, but also when you are dealing with the results of the consultation? How do you implement in your policies, particularly if you are an international player, consistency across the group so you don't have disgruntled employees in one jurisdiction who think that another jurisdiction is getting a better a better deal than they are. So um, I think that cultural uh, and jurisdictional consistency is also important. So lots and lots to think about, um, but we are, you know, the world is a small place now. So we have to think globally, think internationally with what we're doing all the time, I think. Thank you so much, Alison. And Ivelisse, building on your point about one size fits all simply doesn't work, how do we build on that concept? Because sometimes the mindset alone, as Alison educates us so well about the global perspective, how can the perspective of recognizing it must be tapered to a given culture within the overall consistency or general approach of a company, how can that be achieved? Absolutely. So two things that come to mind, alternatives and access. So from a employee's perspective, when these issues do arise, whether it's culturally, whether it has to do with their individual workplace, whatever the case may be, might be, having an open line of communication with your HR individuals with your legal team to ensure that alternatives are available, are built into handbooks, are built into contracts, just being able to access that kind of information to ensure that an issue does not arise later on. We understand that we cannot accommodate everyone when it comes to these various policies. There are going to be outliers and issues that arise, but ensuring that an employee has these questions answered, has an individual they are able to go to in order to seek out these alternatives and bring these issues to the table. And from there, taking that information and applying it down the road. So once a company recognizes this is an issue in this jurisdiction or this culturally, taking that and implementing it in policies as it relates to hybrid or flexible work and ensuring it's consistent across the board. Well, thanks so much, Ivelisse. And Allison, truly, your thought leadership on a global level is inspiring to all of us. And 
we may be in an era when we look back, when we look at the age of the Enlightenment and how it influenced much of the world, we may really be at a point in time when you think about the technological changes and the way work is conceived, this may be truly a new global workplace with a new concept of work. And so, as Allison has highlighted so well, how to ask those questions from a strategic point of view and how to be a good listener, how to build that in so there's access and voice, as Ivelisse says, those are the kinds of questions that merit in this age of extraordinary transformation of the workplace throughout the globe. All those factors merit reflection and development. And we're so thankful you joined us today for this discussion. We wish you a special day in a new era, in a new time of work. Thank you so much. That brings us to the end of this episode of the Biz Lit Today podcast series, which can be found on law.com. I'm your host, Scott Ferguson. Join us next time. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely on advertising. The views and information discussed in this podcast are for informational purposes only and are not intended to be any kind of legal advice.